I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and today it's really special because I'm joined by a friend who I always knew was very smart, but didn't know quite how smart until I read her book. So let me introduce her. Jamie Green is a science writer, essayist, editor, and teacher, and she's series editor of the Best American Science and Nature Writing. She received her MFA in creative nonfiction from Columbia, and her writing has appeared in Slate, Popular Science, The New York Times Book Review, and elsewhere. She lives in Connecticut with her husband and son, and her new book is called The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's such a pleasure. I feel like my overall feeling when I finished reading this book is that we don't know what we don't know. And so it, we, we don't quite have all of the right questions to ask or have a really firm idea of what we're looking for in, in this expansive possibility. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just that the possibilities are so expansive, like you said, that we know how to look for life that's like life on Earth. And we have no idea if that's the right direction to be going in. But as I get into in the book, it's like partly a practical problem. How is this science to be done? But then it also is much more of a like conceptual problem of how do we think about life on earth beyond earth how do we think about ourselves and how we fit into the cosmos which is tangled up in all of this like 
there's the practical, like, how do I do scientific research question? What are the right hypotheses? And how do I frame this? And what's the evidence I'm looking for? But it's very hard to extricate that from questions about like meaning and hope and things like that. Totally. And and one of the things I love about this book is you talk to so many different scientists from so many different camps with so many different specialties. And it seemed like there was not much of a consensus. No. And then you also spoke to a lot of authors. Yes. And and how does the job of the scientist differ, I guess, from the role, from the job of the author? I mean, aside from the obvious things about like what they are meant to produce, one of the assumptions that I just had to go with from the start in order to write this book and that sort of like underlies the premise of the book is that science and storytelling are both imaginative acts. And I think that's obviously a lot more obvious for storytelling, for fiction writers, for filmmakers. But I do see a lot of imagination necessary in the work that these scientists do, like even to think about like, okay, how could we look for life on another planet, whether that's a planet like Mars where we can send rovers or it's an exoplanet around another star where all we can do is like look at the starlight filtering through the planet's atmosphere and you know just like even that coming up with that idea requires so much imagination but i think the biggest difference like fundamentally is sort of in their audience like who they're doing the work for storytellers and fiction writers are telling stories for other humans they are trying to have an effect on their human audience and the ways that they imagine alien life are mostly tools for that. Whereas scientists, like, yes, their audience is still people and the knowledge that humans have, but I feel like their sort of, their fealty is toward to the truth of the universe rather than mm. to the human audience. And so questions of like what we want and what things mean are really secondary in science, whereas they are absolutely first for storytellers. Absolutely. I, I think that one of the themes both in, in your book and in just about every sci-fi novel I've read is the hubris of of people in so many ways. Like you start out even explaining geocentrism, like thinking that the earth is a center of the universe, which <laughs> yeah. we 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 have learned otherwise, but then you start to think like, what else are we centering ourselves about when when it's really not about us? Mm -hmm. I was I was actually interested in Ed Young blurb this book. And I, I saw so many parallels between the work that he did in this, the immense world and, and what you do in this book, which is that we can't even begin to imagine how animals perceive the world. We can't, we, we, we can like try to understand them a little better, but, but there is a fundamental lack of ability to communicate given how, how different we are. Yeah, I was both like frustrated and relieved that I didn't get his book until I was done with my book, 
because, you know, I have a whole section of a chapter about animal perception, animal intelligence, and the impossibility of imagining our way into a bat or a dolphin's experience. And so then we think, well, how much harder would it be with an alien? But on the flip side, if the alien on another planet is like analogous to us, if they are on land instead of on water or flying through the air, like their experience might be a lot more similar to ours than a bat's or a dolphin's. And so their worldview and their experience of the world. And so it might be easier to communicate with an alien than with a mm -hmm. dolphin. But yeah, I did when I was reading An Immense World, did see a lot of parallels, definitely got to some stuff where I was like, ooh, I, I could have cited that if I had known that. But yeah, it's just, and and I think that the, the things that he reveals in that book about alien senses are really, no. <laughs> The things that he reveals in that book about animal senses are really relevant to how we think about aliens because they show how narrow our imaginations are. That we imagine that an alien is going to have the same senses as us, have the same body plan as us, have the same categories of culture as we do and sort of be able and be more like just another kind of human that we haven't met yet than something truly alien. But, you know, Ed writes about animals that can like sense electric fields with their bodies and just like bats and sonar and just the wild differences and how it's not just like seeing with sound it's it's so like we just can't imagine it and it's amazing to try mm -hmm. and i think that's another parallel that like one of the real pleasures of his book was reading it and being like i if i like really squeeze i can almost imagine what this totally unimaginable thing is like and I think that that's what we try to do with aliens, too. And I think that that effort is really meaningful, that it's like trying to physically stretch your muscles to be able to go a little farther than you can. And you push like all the way to the edge of your range of motion. And like the next time you can go a little farther. And it really is like an imaginative, empathetic muscle that you can build. I love that. And you're kind of like our personal trainer with this book. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you do give us some criteria though i'm wondering like how how you narrow down to like habitability of a planet and evolution and convergence and and why that matters in terms of like the broad categories that you talk about in this book yeah that, that I, kind of guide us it's weird like the structure of the book which is what those category how those categories work in the book like there are six chapters and each is one of these broad categories they sort of made themselves apparent to me from the start and and i almost feel a little embarrassed by how sort of inflexible the structure was where it's like like the insides of the chapters changed a lot but from the very start i knew that the, that's what the chapters were going to be and i knew that they were going to be in that order and i think it's just because those are the big questions to me like those are the things that we need to be able to figure out in order to know what an alien might be like. And there are also the categories that were interesting to me, that there were cool scientific questions and um, cool fiction to write about and bring into it. And it was only after I had written a whole draft of the book and then went to revise the introduction that I realized that my structural principle was probably really influenced by the Drake equation, which is one of the like foundational ideas of SETI, which as I write about in the book is not really an equation, but is more like 
a way of estimating. I mean, the idea is that it adds up to the number of civilizations in the galaxy who at any given moment might be transmitting signals that we could receive. But Frank Drake, when he came up with this in like 1960 or 1961, wasn't trying to actually come up with the answer because a lot of the variables in the equation were totally unknown. The fraction of planets that have life on them, we don't know that. But it, he was using it as an agenda setting exercise. Like this is the stuff that we would need to know in order to know that number of civilizations. So these are the things we need to talk about. And it's that way of thinking about it that I realized I had borrowed for my book, that it's like, if we're going to think about aliens, these are the kinds of things that we need to think about. You know, how does life start? Where does life exist? How does life evolve, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing I love about your invocation of the Drake equation in the introduction is it gets at a thing I found very charming about the book which is that you do most of your own <laughs> illustrations. So many people have commented on those, and I had <laughs> no idea that they would be such a thing. But yeah, I originally did all of the illustrations, but some of that, like, I can't draw a very good circle. Like, I'm not an illustrator. I'm not an artist. But it started with, I don't remember if it was for my own visualization or to show to someone, but I was writing about... Um, how we detect exoplanets. And one of the ways we do that is by seeing the little bit that an exoplanet going in front of its star to our view blocks the star's light, like a tiny little eclipse. And um, I was trying to describe sort of the, the chart that astronomers use to plot that out and to show it. And so just on a tiny little post-it note, I just drew that little dip in the line of the star's brightness. And then I was just looking at it and I was like, huh, that could go in the book. <laughs> and no one decided to stop me. I really thought at various points someone was going to be like, this is silly. Or like, there's a drawing of a little monkey-like animal that I talk about from Avatar, where I drew it because it's, it's really <laughs> hard to describe because he like, yes. sort of has six limbs, limbs or... but sort of has four. And I was like, I'll just draw it. And it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. <laughs> But but then it it's it's such a good contrast to you know you do include some other images and and <laughs> some one real of art. Them, <laughs> one of them is the work of Mick Ellison, yeah. who has this job where he's he's meant to like imagine what a previous previously living creature was like based on the evidence that scientists can compile. Yeah. He he works at the Museum of Natural History in New York. And even though he's drawing extinct earth animals, I felt like it was relevant. And he had some really interesting things to say about what makes a drawing of an animal look real. Because mm -hmm. I, I found that really interesting, that we have this innate sense of what's natural and what's not. And yeah, his, it's like a feathered dinosaur. And he gave me permission to include that illustration. And that is is quite a work of art, unlike mine. <laughs> It's very beautiful. But but then but then also and, and sorry to to keep going through your art, but there are things that remind me of junior year chemistry class. Like you will show us 
Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, a carbon atom and a silicon atom and just like how many electrons they have. The, the, the feeling that I was hoping to evoke and that I think has been successful because of like, we're talking now a couple weeks before the book comes out. Not a lot of people have read this. And of the few people who've read it, a lot have commented on the illustrations. But I really wanted it to feel like we're, you know, sitting at a bar talking about this stuff and I'm explaining something I'm like, oh, let me, and I just grab a cocktail napkin and a pen and I draw it. I'm like, this is what it looks like. You know, that that's why it was important to me that it was my own bad illustrations. And even when, you know, the designer made the circles a little more circular. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Because even in the writing, you know, I don't have a PhD. I took one undergrad astronomy class when I was getting my MFA. I like talked the professor into letting me into his class, even though I couldn't do calculus. It turned out he's also a writer. So I think he, he like understood. But like, I don't have even an undergrad degree in science. And there are a lot of astronomy books on the topic of life beyond Earth but they're almost all written by scientists. And so I think, you know, just like with the illustrations where I'm like, I am not an artist. I'm just going to draw this to explain it. I, I hope that I'm, you know, sort of on the reader's side in the writing too, even though I've, you know, spent years researching this, like I'm not a practitioner in the science. I'm also not a practitioner in the fiction writing, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, <laughs> But I just, I hope that I'm a slightly better writer than I am an illustrator. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. One of the other tools you give us, of course, is evoking so much popular culture about visions of what alien life could look like. And one of the things I realized from looking at your carbon versus silicon <laughs> electron is that Star Trek was based in much more science than I ever gave it credit for. Yeah, yeah. And and they really have a track record of that, especially, you know, I don't know how much scientific consideration went into the original series, but I know that like from Next Generation and onward, they've been working with scientists. Like there's a physicist named Aaron McDonald who like consults on all the shows and it's not that they care about things being accurate, but it's like you might as well make what could be plausible plausible, A, because a lot of scientists watch Star Trek and they'll appreciate it, but it also, mm -hmm. just like Mick Ellison's drawings, gives it that foundation of reality that I think makes it easier to go along with the imagination. And there's actually a really great book that I used in my research. I'm like looking around my office trying to see where it is. It's called live long and evolve it's by an evolutionary biologist and like major star trek fan named muhammad noor who i also spoke to for the book and that was a really helpful guide for me because he just like goes through a ton of evolutionary biology through the lens of star trek and talks about what star trek gets right and what star trek gets wrong not as a way of criticizing star trek but as a way of like opening the door into learning about all this science which i i just think is really cool so cool. And I, I, yeah, I feel like I'm in the entryway now. <laughs> Another one of my favorite authors who you talked to was Ted Chiang. Yeah. And, and, and I think that in the context of your book, the story of your life slash arrival, 
is such a brilliant illustration of the kinds of things that we're not quite able to comprehend from linguistics and, and, and how we experience time. Yeah. And talking to Ted was really interesting because like I write about a lot of fiction in the book. I didn't interview most of the authors, mostly because like the books speak for themselves, you know, and, um, you know, I was putting my my undergrad close reading skills to use. I actually sought out the interview with Ted. I just remembered this because I was writing an early draft of that section and just sort of like free writing about story of your life slash arrival and found myself writing the sentence. So I asked Chang, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I guess I have to interview him now. <laughs> oh, I love that as a writing prompt. And and luckily he was available and spoke to me and and really opened up my understanding of that story and of his work because he's such an interesting sci-fi writer where he's always trying to get at the human emotional story. And then he picks a scientific or technological conceit that sets up that emotional journey or conflict. So like he what didn't write this story because he was interested in linguistics or because he was interested in time or because he wanted to write about aliens. He wrote this story because he wanted to write about like, what would you do if you knew that something horrible would happen at the end of a lot of wonderful things in your life? And then it's like, he was like, well, how do I make someone be able to see through time? I'll have them meet aliens who talk non-linearly. But he has such a robust knowledge of science that he was able to like pull out the linguistics concept and the physics concepts that created that setup. But he is not at all about imagining aliens. Like the aliens are a tool for him for Louise's story. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I mean, with with any physical book, it's it's impossible to do, but even with um, the movie version of the story, Arrival, it's very clear that we are not meant to know too much about what the aliens actually look like. And that seems to be a, a fairly common principle in terms of writers who who kind of want us to be able to use the most of our imaginations. Yeah, I learned that that's why in Contact, both the book mm -hmm. and the movie, instead of seeing the alien, the alien takes on the form of Ellie's dad. And in the book, there are like, I think five people who go in the machine to the center of the galaxy. And they each get a guide in the shape of a loved one. I don't remember if they're all deceased. But yeah, it's because Carl Sagan didn't want to narrow down the possibilities and sort of collapse all the possibilities into one version of an alien. And also like, there are so many open questions about like, what, what would an alien on another world look like? And, and he didn't want to make a guess about that. He didn't, you know, especially because it was Carl Sagan, he didn't want to be like, this is how I, Carl Sagan, imagine aliens will look. He was much more interested in the relationships, the ideas, the actions, and the connections that they were starting to build with humanity. So, and that's why he was like, oh, it's just, he's just going to look like her dad. <laughs> and, and, and another thing about contact that I hadn't remembered 
was that there is an overtly religious ending in, in some capacity. Yeah. Um, talk about that. It's definitely at least spiritual. But yeah, when Ellie is at, the, and so this, I honestly can't remember if this is in the movie right now. But in, I mean, in the movie, she like falls in love with, in both of them, she falls in love with the preacher. So there's that kind of spiritual situation. But in the book, at least, when she's meeting the alien, he tells her that one of the things his people have discovered is that there's a message encoded in pi, that when you take the infinite non-repeating digits of pi out far enough, there starts to be a pattern that clearly encodes a message, but that they have not deciphered. And pi is fundamental to the fabric of the universe. It's, it's, Whoever made the laws of physics made pi. And at the very end of the book, Ellie is back at her observatory and she has taken all the computers that used to do the work of decoding and sort of looking for patterns in radio signals. And she's having them calculate and look for patterns in pi. And at the very last page, she finds it. And I was just like, Carl, you're going to end your book with saying that God is real? Like, what? <laughs> but I, you know, I, I spoke to his his widow and creative partner, Andrewian, who's the uncredited co-author of the Book of Contact and has a story credit on the movie and was his co-producer on Cosmos and all sorts of stuff and a novelist in her own right. And And to her, there's a very big difference between the human conception of God and for her, that was very much about like the punitive, judgmental God. And then the idea that there is meaning in the universe. And to her, that's mm -hmm. what that represented. Not that there's some guy on a throne who <laughs> said, mm, I'm going to write my people a little message in pie, but just that there is more than we can understand in the universe and that that is important. Absolutely. And, and one of the other things that the Sagan husband wife team did was was send that golden record up yes. up into the and so let's talk a little bit about what we have tried we on earth have tried to to send out into the world including I was very excited to learn a a drawing a a pulsar map which happens to be a tattoo that you have. Yes. Yeah, it's it's like to show my commitment to this. I mean, I've had that tattoo for probably about 10 years, 11 years, which is also how long I've been noodling with this idea and thinking about how to write about this. So, yeah, the the Voyager Golden Records are sort of messages in a bottle that were tacked onto the Voyager probes when they were launched in the mid 70s. And those were observational missions to like take pictures of the outer solar system. But NASA knew that they were going to just keep going. You know, some spacecraft have clear endings, the Mars rovers land on Mars, and then they eventually run out of power or, um, you know, some Jupiter missions are spiraled into the planet to to rest in peace there. But the Voyager probes, they knew were gonna keep going. And so Sagan had made something simpler for the Pioneer mission, which was just a little plaque that had, it had like a little sort of drawing of a human man and woman and a schematic 
of the planets of the solar system with a little arrow showing the path of the probe and the pulsar map, which is a, I think the pulsar map is on the pioneer plaque. And so the pulsar map, it looks sort of like a starburst or a sparkler. And it's, it's a map of where the earth is in the galaxy in relation to the center of the galaxy and these pulsars, which are stars that essentially work like lighthouses shooting a beam. And so for wherever you are, it seems like it's blinking. And that was also on the Voyager golden record on the cover of it. And the golden record, in addition to like the, the sort of schematics is like a record, like you would play on a record player that has encoded on it images and sounds that are sort of, you know, messages from earth. So there's lots of music from different cultures from, you know, Bach and Chuck Berry and Javanese Gamelan. There's greetings in hundreds of languages, but they're not all saying the same thing. It was like the UN representatives got to each say whatever they wanted to say. So it's really useless for trying to translate. There's laughter of children, I think Carl Sagan's son, and there's a recording of Andrean's brainwaves. She like meditated for an hour on the state of the earth. She and Sagan had recently fallen in love. And so her brainwaves are also encoded on there. And it's just, it's just such a, a romantic gesture, not just her meditation, the whole thing, the idea of saying this is a representation of life on earth and it's music and whale song and heartbeats and it's just like so idealistic and so beautiful and you know it's just they're out there it's the two probes just sort of making their way <laughs> incredible and um of course even in in the marketing copy for this book <laughs> we talk about like what our exploration of alien life says about humanity mm -hmm. but I, I found it so hopeful that just the idea that we could all come together as human beings for, for any reason, right? <laughs> and to start thinking of ourselves as, as citizens on the planet rather than in certain countries. Yeah, that's, that's been a big hope of, especially the earlier generation of SETI scientists like Carl Sagan, Frank Drake, Jill Tarter who, depending who you ask, may have been the inspiration for the main character in Contact. That's a very contentious. Some people really don't like that idea. So allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. But um, yeah, they, especially, you know, working in the 70s, it felt like for the first time ever, humanity had the power to destroy itself, you know, because of nuclear war. And, you know, Sagan was, was adamantly opposed nuclear weapons and that's a, a conspicuous thread running through contact and so they one of their hopes was that proof of alien life or a message or some sort of guidance from aliens could help us through what sagan called our adolescence as a species you know if you sort of think about a teenager who just got the keys to the family car but isn't really responsible enough that was how he saw us but on, on the other hand, hoping that finding alien life will remind us, oh, we're all just the same, is really just passing the buck. Instead of other humans being the other, 
you know, the out group against right. whom we compare ourselves. It's like, oh, well, now the alien is the other who's going to remind us that we're all humans and we're all the same. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, when when any when anyone hopes that like finding proof of alien life will finally get humans to clean up our act, you know, will finally save the planet or stop hating each other or stop killing each other or whatever. It's like, I, we also like, we know enough to, to fix our ways and we're not doing it. And unless the alien comes with like an infinite source of clean energy, but that wouldn't even make us better. That would just give us an excuse to keep going. <laughs> and, and there is the part that, that displaced xenophobia. Exactly. It's like there needs to be someone else to an other to draw the line with. And so that we would draw a bigger circle around all of Earth, but it still is drawing an in and an out and us and an other. And I, you know, that's that's never been good for anyone. Jamie, I love this book and I congratulate you. you. And before we finish up, please recommend some books for us. Yes. Well, I mean, I write about a lot of books in the book. Yes, you do. um, I was very deliberate that I only wrote about books that I loved. I made a couple exceptions. I write about Avatar. I don't really like Avatar, (laughs) but that little monkey man with his six arms was just so useful. And I write about Solaris, even though I didn't really love it because it's just like such like chauvinist mid-century sci-fi, but the alien stuff is so good. So, but every other book that I write about in my book, I love. So it's like Contact, Ted Chang stories, um, the Broken Earth trilogy, Rosewater, Semiosis, The Sparrow, some Stephen Baxter novellas, like they're all great. But other than that, (laughs) (laughs) we already have a very good reading list from you, but please keep going on. One book that I love that's coming out in May that I think people should keep an eye out for is You or Someone You Love by Hannah Matthews. The subtitle is Reflections of an Abortion Doula. And it is a lot about abortion and systems of care and mutual aid and her own abortion and her work in a clinic. Lots of interviews with other reproductive health and reproductive justice people. But I was really amazed by how expansive it was and how much, how like bigger its reach was. I found it to be a really powerful book about care and individual choice and communities and support and like forgiveness and unconditional love. And it's also just so beautifully written and it's really funny in moments. It's like, it's not like a jokey book, but (laughs) um, you know, there's like a real person writing it and she has a sense of humor and sometimes that comes through. So I'm just so excited about that book being in the world. So that's, that's the one I'm like really evangelizing for lately. And I also recently, this is me deciding, I'm going to just go with two other books because I can't choose between them. I really like to listen to like natural history books on audiobook and One that I listened to recently was Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake, which is all about fungi, and it is amazing. I heard about it because my UK publishers used it as a comp, as like a reference for my book, and I was like, 
okay, you're just picking the mushroom book that sold really well, whatever. But <laughs> there is like a spirit that I really recognized in it, which is he's writing about this scientific subject that he's super fascinated by, like obsessed with, but he's also writing about humanity through that lens. And it was just fascinating. I learned so much science and it's beautifully written and he reads the audiobook, and it's really lovely. And then right now I'm in the middle of a book called The Great Quake by Henry Fountain. And so this is about a huge earthquake in Alaska in the 1960s that unlocked our understanding of plate tectonics. Because I love the fact that plate tectonics, which like we learned in school, it's just like, yeah, this is what the continents do. This It was discovered so recently. It was not until like the mid or late 60s that there was full understanding and consensus about it. And that amazes me. It's so recent. And so I'm just really enjoying learning all of that. And it's a really, really engagingly written book. Like yesterday I was listening to it on my commute and I teared up and laughed, like like laughed out loud at a book about geology. <laughs> so that's, that's really wonderful also. I love that. Jamie, <laughs> thank you so much. The possibility of life is out now. Thank you so much, Maris. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>